I love moving. Uh, I seem to always be moving. My wife jokes that even if I'm in one spot, I'm actually not standing still, right? Legs bouncing, the whole thing. I have actually worked for two moving companies in my life. I like road trips with the windows down, like roller coasters and biking, hiking, paddling. God has given me a lot of energy, and I need to go to bed tired. So it takes a lot of work, and movement has to be on the menu. So some of you are like me, and you love to move, and some of you prefer to sit still and watch the world move around you. Some of you prefer to be still and have nothing move. Any of you who have been reading Ezekiel were probably surprised and maybe mostly confused uh, by the opening scenes of movement in the book. Wheels whirling, uh, cherub wings flying, eyes looking around, the gleaming throne chariot in motion. This is a jarring start to the book and it's hard to read. The first time I read Ezekiel, I was 24 years old. I had to sketch what I was reading just to follow along. It was so otherworldly. It was my first time through the Bible and I had no idea what I was reading. Fortunately, the Bible Project is very creative. Hopefully you stumbled upon that resource. Today you're going to hear a lot about movement and I hope that you'll rejoice with me in hearing how God once again moves toward us, with us, and in his people. In case you're not entirely up to date, uh, let's take two minutes and kind of just catch us all up. Ezekiel comes on the scene as a prophet during the time of Jeremiah. It's when he's prophesying to Judah before the final fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC. Ezekiel was a priest living in Jerusalem during the first Babylonian attack on Jerusalem. That's in 2 Kings 24. It's also 597 BC. They took the first wave of prisoners, including Ezekiel, hauled them off to Babylon in captivity of exile from Israel. The maps show the route the people would have taken to walk the 900 miles from Israel on the left to Babylon on the right over the Fertile Crescent. At the opening of Ezekiel, it's five years after the first waves of Israelites are exiled in Babylon, where Ezekiel is sitting by an irrigation canal. It's Ezekiel's 30th birthday, the day Ezekiel would have been installed as a priest over Israel if he had been there. Ezekiel has a vision. It's his first. His final vision is 22 years later. So it's a long span. Why do we read Ezekiel? Because God never leaves his people. Never. Ezekiel shows us in rare form just how committed God is to his people. The lengths and the breadths, the heights and depths that God is more than willing to go, that he's committed to go for you and me. If you're anything close to me, that you need God to go deep into the pit, into the mire to pull you out. As far as the east is and the west, which never stop, God needs to go there for you and for me. If you're here this morning and you're a sinner, this book is for you. If you're here this morning and you need grace and mercy, this book is for you. If you're here and you think you're pretty good, you kind of got things handled, not sure what the big deal is, this book is for you. And if you're sure that God cannot possibly love you after all you've done, this book is for you. 
Maybe you don't think there's a God. Maybe you don't think that he's good or uh, that he cares. This book is for you. Today in the book of Ezekiel, we're going to see a lot of movement. And it gets worse before it gets better. Let's read first in Ezekiel 8, verse 6. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here, to drive me far from my sanctuary? But you will see still greater abominations. And he brought me to the entrance of the court, that's of the temple. And when I looked, behold, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig in the wall. So I dug in the wall, and behold, there was an entrance. And he said to me, go in and see the vile abominations that they are committing here. So I went in and saw, and there engraved on the wall all around was every form of creeping things and loathsome beasts and all the idols of the house of Israel. And before them stood 70 men of the elders of the house of Israel. Each had a censer in his hand, and the smoke of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel are doing in the dark? each in his room of pictures. For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. He also said to me, you will still see greater abominations that they commit. Then he brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. It's It's a God that they placed in the temple there in Jerusalem. Verse 16, and he brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And behold, At the entrance of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, worshiping the sun toward the east. Then he said to me, have you seen this, O son of man? It is, is this too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? Therefore, I will act in my wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. This is a lot. But guess what? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And I said that we were going to see a lot of movement in Ezekiel. So first, let's focus on moving in. We see in Ezekiel 8, the Israelite people moved their idol worship into the temple. This is the worst thing that we've seen so far in the Old Testament. And we saw the high priest Aaron take and make a golden calf for the people to worship at the Mount of Mount Sinai while Moses was up top receiving the law from the Lord. We've seen judges and kings do monstrous deeds of idolatry as well as full-on adultery, murder, collusion with other nations because they did not trust Yahweh. All that was bad, but we've not seen it get this bad. Why would this in chapter 8 grieve God? He gives Ezekiel and us four scenes to depict exactly why this would grieve him so. I didn't read it, but verse 6 commented on it. It's the first scene, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 8, the image of jealousy. This is a statue that the people had set up, most likely Uh, the Canaanite goddess Asherah, right outside the temple. And this provokes God to jealousy. The prophets are constantly calling out the people's whoredom. Chapter 6 hits that theme really hard, and so does chapters 16 and 23, if you're reading along this week. God will not share Israel's worship with other gods. It rightfully belongs to him. 
He talks about it like one spouse cheating on another spouse. Israel is cheating on Yahweh. The next scene, verse 12, that we read has the 70 elders offering incense to idols in a secret chamber. And here's the contrast Ezekiel is making. In Exodus 20, it was 70 elders of Israel who received the unique privilege of seeing God. Later, they were each given the same spirit as Moses. In Numbers 11, 70 elders were there. Don't miss it. God is specifically giving Ezekiel the vision of this full circle betrayal. They are betraying Yahweh, these new 70 elders, again. Why did they do this? You know, I think they might have felt that God had abandoned them. They thought it might help out the situation. The third scene, the women are weeping for Tammuz, a Babylonian ritual here in verse 14 that was supposed to promote fertility. Then the fourth scene has us even getting closer to the Holy of Holies within the temple. The 25 men, verse 16, turn their backs on the temple, on God's holy presence, and prostrate themselves to the east in worship of the sun. They're not bowing down to the living God, seeking his face. They worshiped the created order, the sun. So in these four brief scenes, we see the nature of the sins of Jerusalem, Commentator Ian Duguid makes the point that their sin extends from the outside of the city gate to the inner courtyard of the temple. It involves men and women, 70 elders, symbolic of the leadership of the whole people. It includes idolatry that was imported from the surrounding nations, including all kinds of gods, men, women, animals, celestial bodies. Duguid says, this is a unified, universalized religion the ultimate multi-faith worship service. From God's point of view, this is one abomination piled upon another. God's people were in the temple using it to worship false idols. Now, this is no true comparison. So you got your seatbelts on, right? Okay, all right. But think how furious Clemson would be if Death Valley were filled with fans dressed in garnet and black from head to toe, chanting cheers and singing praise of Cocky and the General. That's the new name for Sir Big Spur, right? In case you were following along this week. Uh, Worshiping them right there on the field. Maybe even sacrificing the tiger and the cub on the 50-yard line. Like actually killing them. Israel rejected the God that they were called to worship. They chose a different God. They actively pursued those gods in the places that were holiest to Yahweh. Culture today, as it always has been, is pluralistic, right? Right? Practical polytheism. It's a mix and match, whatever works for you approach. Again, Ian Duguid says the Bible urges us to consider that the choice facing us is not between between equally valid methods of expressing our spirituality, but between truth and falsehood, between worshiping the God who created us or bowing down to abominations that are not God's at all. What are you tempted to bow down and worship? Maybe good things, like God-given talents or your family. Maybe pleasure or success. I think we see it in the polls, an overwhelming number of Americans believe in God's existence and in the Bible as 
his word, yet they never go to church or read the Bible. And it might be you. Uh, it could easily be you, even though you're in church at this moment. But perhaps you've created a religion, religion to fit your own cultural preferences. I don't know. But I looked at my heart this week. I encourage you too. Could it be? The movement in these passages and in Ezekiel doesn't stop there. The people moved in, right, bringing their idol worship into the temple. Then something even more shocking happens. Our second point, moving out. The glory of the Lord moved out of the temple. Wait, what? The glory of the Lord moved out of the temple. Chapter 10, look at verse 1. Then I looked and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire in appearance like a throne. Here's that throne chariot again. And he said to the man clothed in linen, go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim. And he went in before my eyes. Verse four. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherubim to the threshold of the house And the house was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. Down to verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house. This is a vision that Ezekiel is seeing. So it's not strict reality that we know of, but in prophetic form, he is seeing what God sees. Just how bad it is and worse than we could know. God sees what is done in secret and he's out of here. What is this glory? It's the Shekinah glory, right? God's tangible presence on earth dwelling with his people. The glory was present with the Israelites, you remember that, in the wilderness in spite of all their sin. Remember Moses and his shining face? He had to wear a veil when he'd been in with the glory of the Lord or the people would freak out. Remember that massive ceremony that Solomon had when the temple was finished? If you see 2 Chronicles 7, 1 to 6, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw The fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple. They bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good, for steadfast love endures forever. Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. King Solomon offered as a sacrifice 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. That's a whole lot of livestock, right? Can you imagine the blood? Why does there need to be sacrifice? Why blood? It symbolizes the people's need for atonement, for forgiveness of their sins, washing away the guilt that they have because they are sinners. God used this as a visual display for the people so that they could know that they're sinners, repent, and then come back to God. When God descended on Solomon's temple, it was a big deal. And now he's leaving that temple. When we forget that we're sinners and we don't repent and thus move further away from God, we we tend to spiral downhill like a mad fiend. This doesn't happen overnight. God said it about Sodom and Gomorrah in the time of Abraham. He had, it had reached its full measure of sin and, and so too, the Canaanites in Joshua's time, during the conquest, that their sins had reached 
the full measure. And now Israel, God's people in the land given by God, their sin has reached the full measure. They've reached rock bottom. This is why God left the temple. One commentator wrote, the Lord waits long to be gracious as if he knew not how to smite. He smites at last as if he knew not how to pity. When judgment fell on Canaan, it was swift, inexorable, completely lacking in pity. Now the new Canaanites, Israel, will experience the same inexorable wrath of God. We balk against this view of God. It might be why you've really struggled reading the Old Testament, but this is the same God of the Old and the New Testaments. I think in the New Testaments, the object of God's wrath upon whom his wrath was out poured was his son, and not us, not his people. The New Testament is even more grisly than we can imagine. But because it's all poured out on one person, on one man, we think that, ah, God's not as bad as he was in the Old Testament. That's not true. He's consistent. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. But if we take that stance as God was kinder in the New Testament, I think we miss out just how much his total, full, complete wrath poured out on his son, Jesus, for my sins, for your sins, for all the sins of people throughout all time, past, now, and in the future. This wrath caused earthquakes, the sun to hide its face. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Jesus on the cross, so many have missed him. I beg you not to miss him. Jesus, God's son, was the way the father had to release his wrath that he built up since Adam and Eve in the garden disobeying him. Our task now is to preach the gospel to all nations, to win our enemies over with deeds of kindness and love and hope because a last final judgment day is coming. One day this will happen. Folks will be taking their kids to school, doing some last minute shopping, planning a trip to the lake and the Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. Those who are spared on that final judgment day will be like Ezekiel's remnant. They've sighed, they've mourned over the abominations that are around them. That's from chapters, uh, chapter 9. Uh, who have been marked with the name of the Lamb and of his Father. For the rest of the people... God says nothing but eternal fire. I mean, if you're wondering where the term fire and brimstone originated in reference to preaching and preachers, this is one spot for sure. It's a warning. It's a plea. God is slow to anger, slow to wrath, but his slowness and his patience won't last forever. Come to Jesus, repent and believe. I went to Israel in June with the trip from the church. We're going again in a couple of years, so I highly recommend that you go. It will truly change how you read the Bible, how you understand the, the, the people of the Bible, the stories, the places 
Each night, uh, we were in Jerusalem. A group would go to the Western Wailing Wall. It's part of that exposed Temple Mount. That portion dates from the Second Temple period. That's what was left over of that retaining wall from over 2,000 years ago, the temple that was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. So that wall there in the Jewish quarter of Jerusalem is the most holy, sacred site in Judaism. All right. The Temple Mount up on top is controlled by Muslims. The gold dome of the rock, that mosque with that famous picture that you saw. So the, the Jews, the Jewish folks have that wall. Day and night, there are Jewish folks at the wall praying. And what I noticed, there was a sense of worship. And it was sad thinking about those highly orthodox Jewish men and women praying that Yahweh would return and give them their temple back. It's sad. It's hard to watch. Just imagining the Jewish folks reading Ezekiel's book of prophecy and watching the glory of God leave the temple. And Ezekiel has another vision in chapters 40 to 48 of a new temple. It's much larger than the first and second temples that were built. All that to say, if God is not bound to the temple, he's not bound to that wall. The people and their idolatry moved into the temple. It finally triggered God's glory to move out of the temple. And that was shocking. But then something happened that no one saw coming. Something glorious. Something amazing. It was God, and he was moving with his people. Third point, God himself moved to Babylon to be with his people. Those same people who rejected him again and again. Chapter 11, verse 1. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord, which faces east. And behold, at the entrance of the gateway, there were 25 men, princes of the people. And he said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and who give wicked counsel in this city. Verse 5. And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me. And he said to me, Thus says the Lord, so you think, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. He says it again in verse 12, this phrase. And you, know, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So watch for this phrase in, in Scripture. It's the theme of Ezekiel. Uh, 72 times it's reiterated, chapter after chapter. He, this, this phrase, and you shall know that I am the Lord, it's what he wants us to know. He wants us to know him, right? The text goes on. For you have not walked in my statues, nor obeyed my rules, but have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. 13, and it came to pass, while I was prophesying, the Pelatea and the son of Benaniah died. Then I fell down on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? Ezekiel feels like there's not many folks left. On to verse 16. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, though I removed them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary to them. That is a precious statement. That is intimacy with us. He goes on, for a while in the countries where they have gone, 17. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered. And I will give you a land of Israel. And when they come here, they will remove it from all of its detestable things and all of its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. This is big time. 
right? This is what it's going to take for us to love the Lord, to follow him, a new spirit within us, one that is not natural to us and God putting it in there, our heart of stone that keeps us running from God and to idols is taken out and he's given us a heart of flesh to put in where it was. So that, that stone, that heart of stone, once that's gone, that is what Jesus's life, death and resurrection did and purchased for us, that new heart of flesh. And we're new, verse 20 that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. That's the covenant formula. Always look for that in scripture. God's promise to you and to me, to his children. It's the way it's going to be and he will ensure that state forever. Verse 21. But as for those whose heart goes after their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord God. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings and the wheels beside them and the glory of the Lord of Israel was over them and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. God moved out of the temple and slowly made his way to the Mount of Olives and then further east to Babylon. God moved to be with sinful, untrusting, ungrateful, rebellious, wicked, much-loved people. Chapter 11 was a surprise after chapters 8 to 10. He's told us that he's not going to leave us. He's not going to forsake us. He might have to discipline us as any loving father would do, but he never casts his people out or away from him. And in this case, when he sent them into exile, he went with them, the exiled God. Exile is designed to produce in God's people pure and holy obedience to him and his word, out of delight, not out of duty. Have you seen the movie, The Rescue? It's a, the 2021 National Geographic film, more of a documentary. It tells the story of 12 boys, ages 11 to 16, and their soccer coach who were trapped in the flooded cave system in northern Thailand in 2018. Monsoon season came a month early. The team entered the cave on the 23rd of June, 2018. No contact was made with them until the 2nd of July. What seemed to become an impossible, impossible rescue became a reality. It was a massive effort from the Royal Thai Navy SEALs and the U.S. Air Force Special Tactics Division, plus loads of others. But it was the normal uh, cave divers and their experience who would dive these boys back to safety. Uh, These guys uh, do this kind of thing on the weekend. British divers, so much knowledge, so much experience in this specific subterranean adventure. No one else on earth knew how to do what they did, but they were not alone. It took 10,000 people to pull this thing off. And they pumped out over 1 billion liters of water out of that cave system. Finding the boys ended up being the easy Part. They gave them food, but they had to wait for their return. It took six hours to swim the 1.6 miles from the cave entrance to the boys. And the smallest space they had to get through was this 15-inch by 28-inch section. They realized that uh, they wouldn't be able to dive the boys out. They, they panic. 
So they had a diver buddy who was an anesthesiologist. They, had, they asked him to figure it out. And the final rescue plan would be to sedate them and to swim them out unconscious. If you've got kids, sounds like a good plan, right? Yeah, sounds awesome. That was like plan J, right? Way down. They tried everything. The boys went into the cave 23rd of June, located on the 2nd of July, rescued between the 8th and 10th of July. All safe. Two soldiers died, but the boys were rescued safely. The courage and the compassion of the rescuers was overwhelming. And I bawled my way through the film. What if God cared that much? For you, what if? What if all he did for you to rescue you was far greater than this rescue in Thailand, more complicated, more on the line? That's what he did. Because of our sin, he left the temple. He moved out. Because of his love for us, he moved with us to where he sent the Israelites. And just like Jesus left his father's side in heaven to come be with us, on earth. This movement in Ezekiel was signaling what would come to be. The church is the bride of Christ. His spirit indwells us as his followers. We are new creations. God does not live in a house any longer, not this or any other building. His spirit lives in you and in me. We are the church. The end of Ezekiel, chapters 40 to 48, I think Ezekiel is seeing what God is showing him, right? This new vision, the new city where the temple is the Lord. There's no temple building. He's far bigger than that. And the city contains all of God's people. This is from Edmund Clowney. Ezekiel's vision is precisely a vision of a heavenly truth that found its earthly realization in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It's not so much that Christ fulfills what the temple means. Rather, Christ is the meaning for which the temple existed. What if what we are seeing, this movement in chapters 8 to 11, is about God doing something new, moving with his people and in their true need? God really cares. He knows you're a sinner. That's why he came. Tell him what you're thinking and feeling, your doubts and your fears. Yell at him. He can take it. He's experienced a whole lot from us sinners over a millennium. I think you might find him to be surprisingly kind, loving, patient, and faithful to you. Where is a space that you feel God could never invade in your heart, in your mind, in your actions? Where is somewhere that you feel God could never and would never go with you? That deep, narrow slot in the cave system that is your heart. He's already there. Reach around, feel around, you'll bump into him. You may have done a lot of really terrible things in your life, and I get that, but nothing is beyond his saving grace and mercy. Come to him. Let down your guard. Take up his word. And his promises, his movement, watch it. How that promise to us that we will be his people, that he will be our God, that we will know the Lord is his. It's guaranteed. Y'all, there is a God. He is king and he's coming back. We will never know tears or sorrow or sadness or pain or death. Sin is not the way it's supposed to be. One day, live like you can't wait 
to see that day with all your friends, your family, your neighbors, your enemies, folks that you have woefully mistreated and looked down upon. If they're in Christ, we'll all be there together, forgiven, loved, resting forever. Move to your king. Move to your savior. Move to the lover of your soul. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that this is true, that we can believe it, that what you've done is sure, is guaranteed, and we are waiting to behold it. Lord, thank you for coming. Thank you for leaving, going back to your Father and sending your Spirit. We need him desperately. Lord, help him as he, as he convicts us, as he challenges us, as he encourages us and loves us well. Lord, may we love those around us with boldness and hope. In Christ's name we pray, amen.